The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we head back to the little town of Frankenstein, where its citizens are convinced the town is cursed, thanks to the monstrous creation of Henry Frankenstein. As they proceed to destroy the Frankenstein castle, Igor discovers the monster still alive after its fall into the old sulfur pit, and the two flee to the town of Viseria in search of Henry's second son, the brain surgeon Ludwig Frankenstein, who, until now, has managed to keep his family history a secret from those around him. When Igor brings him face to face with his father's now immortal creation, he must choose whether to destroy it or improve upon it with the world's first successful brain transplant. But Igor, always a step ahead, has his own plans for achieving immortality. It's time to fire up those Tesla coils and head back into the lab as we discuss the ghost of Frankenstein. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He could his face. <laughs> Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spectacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we're talking about the fourth installment in the Frankenstein series, 1942's The Ghost of Frankenstein. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host, a man with a perfect brain, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Dan, you can hang me, you can shoot me, but I'll always come back. <laughs> it's not Igor, it's me. Mike, we've reached the point where Universal has pretty much found its groove with their classic monsters. I'm going to call it the first era of the monster films had some really high highs with Dracula, Frankenstein, The Invisible Man. I consider those to be works of art and incredibly great films, not just horror films. But at the same time, we also got some misfires with Werewolf of London and The Invisible Woman as Universal tried to branch out and try some new things with these characters. But from here on out, with the exception of a few titles, I think you'll find that these movies are going to be much more consistent in terms of their overall quality. You see, Universal wasn't interested in making horror films anymore. Sure, they had some great success with those early pictures, but they were expensive to make. Plus, the world was at war, and that was providing plenty of real-life horror in the newspapers. Now, they wanted to crank out monster movies that would capitalize on their tried-and-true stable of characters without breaking the bank. So now we've got The Ghost of Frankenstein, which I feel pretty comfortable saying is a, is a very solid middle-of-the-road monster movie that definitely scratches that itch. But aside from, like, one pretty major plot point towards the end of the movie, it doesn't really necessarily offer up anything fresh and exciting. What are your thoughts? This was 
An interesting one. I never seen this one before, Dan. I thought I'd seen it, but I think I would have remembered it if I had. <laughs> right. viewing. Like, I was very surprised. This movie is crazy. It's like balls to the walls. I was watching it and I was almost, I don't want this to sound mean in any way. Like, I think it has like this great spirit of, yeah, why not do that? We're in the fourth Frankenstein movie. We don't know how many more we're going to go. Let's just try everything and see what happens. And I just really kind of embraced the fun of this one. Ludwig, long lost Second Son or whatever, the Immortal Igor, all this kind of stuff that they brought back and even tied so closely into the last film and into the first film. It really brings it all together in this one. So while I could admit it's not the Wolfman, right? By any means, it's not Wolfman, but it's definitely second tier for me. You know, I really had a fun time with it. Yeah, I agree. I think that if you just want a pretty unchallenging, but really fun Frankenstein movie, this kind of does it for me. I find myself revisiting this one a little more than some of the others. So far, I'm currently ranking these movies as we go on Letterboxd, and I'm pretty sure I put this towards the bottom, right above The Invisible Woman, but I don't necessarily mean that the way it sounds. Something right now has to fill that spot and right now it's the ghost of Frankenstein as we go on other things may get placed below this but I think I place it down there just because you know it's recycling old ideas and some old footage at one point. So I don't find it to be the most exciting in terms of what it does narratively or visually. You know, it's just kind of a good old-fashioned Frankenstein thriller. I was surprised how well-rounded I think I would say this might be. It's just a good monster movie. Didn't even necessarily need to be Frankenstein. I feel like there's a lot of good energy in this movie. Like, right from the start, it's sort of shot out of a cannon. Its obscurity is sort of part of the fun, too. Just the idea that maybe a lot of people haven't gotten this far, haven't seen this one. You know, this is like my first mm-hmm. time seeing it. And yeah, just all like the crazy, wacky stuff that goes on inside it and how seriously it, it's taken. I think that's like the trick. It's really well directed. Like no matter what kind of insane idea they throw at it, like it's all played straight and it gives off like a very surreal sort of vibe to it that I wasn't expecting and had a lot of fun with. Yes. One thing we can definitely say for sure though is that we are now definitely in like B-movie territory. As you said, it's sort of like second-tier Universal Monsters. But yeah, this movie is a ton of fun, despite the straightforwardness of its approach. I would say maybe they're getting into more exploitation, and like I don't really feel like we've brought that up as sort of a gimmick yet or anything but like they really know okay like every couple minutes something needs to happen like they're not relying Mm -hmm. on the drama here it's all about how can we kind of come up with a weird twisted scenario right and one of the things i really like about this movie is that it's it was an hour and seven minutes just based on that alone i feel like they cram a lot into that hour and seven minutes and it never drags you know they never really give it time to slow down this movie is always pushing the narrative forward and i think that that's definitely something that i put in the pro column. I don't know about you, Mike, but these days when I'm trying to find something to watch, you know, I've got a couple different options. I am more often than not going to pick the movie that is shorter. For some reason, I just love getting in and out in a short period of time and then going on with the rest of my night. I'm in agreement. I think that's why like, I fell in love with Lost and serialized TV became big and now stuff like Netflix shows and everything. Like, I'm, I'm with you there. And with all of these lately, the shorter, these shortcuts, right? Like, that's how they mm-hmm, feel, like mm-hmm. these shortcuts. I always feel like there is definitely room to do stuff. And here, it's not that I would get rid of anything or add anything. Like, they just blow through it at like a super speed 
speedy pace and so, so i would just say kind of like relax next time <laughs> and like you don't, <laughs> you don't really need to film any extra scenes or write any extra stuff it's just like you kind of just have to pace it a little bit better you could just relax and it would automatically add like 10 minutes to the movie <laughs> without changing anything that being said i don't feel like it's a detriment once again because like you said like this just so packed with stuff yeah All right, well, let's get into the production of The Ghost of Frankenstein. With The Son of Frankenstein being such a huge success, a sequel was basically guaranteed. Universal officially announced The Ghost of Frankenstein on November 13th, 1941, only a few weeks before the release of The Wolfman. Now, the one major obstacle with this production, which Universal was sure to mention in their press release, was finding a suitable replacement for Boris Karloff in the role of the monster. However, the very next day, they announced that their, quote, search had come to an end. They had, of course, chosen Lon Chaney Jr., who was still in production on The Wolfman. Now, Universal knew that it was risky to replace Boris Karloff, but they made it clear that they were not interested in waiting a year for him to finish up with his run in a stage production of Arsenic and Old Lace. In fact, they were pushing for production to start before Christmas. However they wanted to spin it in the press, the truth of the matter was that Karloff was no longer under contract, He hadn't been in a Universal film for two years, and he personally felt that he had done everything there was left to do with the monster. Now, George Wagner, if you remember him, he was the producer and director of The Wolfman. He's back here in the producer's chair. He was tasked with keeping the look of the monster consistent so as not to, quote, kill the interest of Frankenstein followers, end quote. They do get the gist of it right, but unfortunately, Lon Chaney was allergic to Jack Pierce's makeup materials. So that is why we get this full-faced Lon Chaney Frankenstein monster, as opposed to the more emaciated-looking Karloff monster. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Universal was more interested in doubling down on their quick-and-easy monster movies than a return to more legitimate horror, so every effort was made to streamline the ghost of Frankenstein as much as possible, but without downgrading their most popular franchise. To achieve this, Universal bolstered the film with solid production value and a strong cast of B-movie actors. You'll notice we've seen most of these actors already in The Wolfman. It's almost like a, a Wolfman reunion. As I was watching, I thought, wait, every actor almost is a Wolfman player. Early drafts of the script were written by Eric Taylor. He would go on to write Son of Dracula and the 1943 Phantom of the Opera, which we will eventually get to. His story involved Basil Rathbone reprising his role as Wolf von Frankenstein, continuing his adventures with Igor and the monster after being exiled after the events of Son of Frankenstein. It would have had Igor conspiring with Wolf's hunchbacked assistant to rally the other handicapped villagers into taking over the town with the monster as their leader. Safe to say this was not the sort of thing Universal was interested in. However, the finished script, written by W. Scott Darling, uh, this being his only Universal Monster credit, retains some of Taylor's ideas, including the monster's bond with a child, the villagers storming the castle, the fiery conclusion, and most notably, the brain transplant. Now, the brain transplant may have been influenced by Kurt Siodmak, with whom Eric Taylor worked on a film called Black Friday. Siodmak was particularly fixated on this idea and had used it in his novel Donovan's Brain and would later use it again in his script for House of Frankenstein. For whatever reason, Kurt Siodmak was very into this idea of brain transplants and, of course, it, it made its way into this script as well. So the finished script was submitted to the Production Code Association under the title There's Always Tomorrow. And unsurprisingly, our good friend Joseph Breen warned against excessive violence and made sure to point out that any scenes set in Frankenstein's operating room or insanity ward would be deleted in England. I think about this movie and and I'm trying to figure out how those scenes are objectionable, but there are things in James Whale's Frankenstein films, at least themes and ideas that are in there that made it through. 
is this sort of like um are they condemning modern science in this movie and like by sort of showing the ward beneath the hospital and you know it's mostly like a dungeon i i all these things were like sort of crossing my mind thematically while watching this and stuff and also the brain surgery stuff is like so fascinating to me because it's like i'm sure it was going on in in horror and ghost stories and stuff but what was going on in neuroscience at the time you know was this a direct reaction to some of that too so all those details about like the plot and stuff just really piqued my interest this time i feel like it's commenting hard and obviously on modern science Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I don't see how any of that is less, quote, offensive than so much of the blasphemy that's present in the earlier Frankenstein films. This isn't ultra-violent either. I can't understand why this stuff would have been cut out for censorship reasons. It's hard to understand when growing up as a kid and you realize they're called the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles over in the UK, right? And you're just like, why aren't they saying ninja? And you hear about like their crazy censorship laws and maybe they're not so crazy, but no, I get you. And, and also though, like you think about the history of, of censorship in film and like, when was the first time they showed a toilet? You know, it's like sure. just these absurd kind of uh, social constructs that ultimately meant nothing, but they're just desperately trying to uphold. Now, what's strange to me is that the film was ultimately banned outright in Denmark when Universal tried to release it there in 1948. Wow. This was six years later. The film had played through numerous territories, presumably. I can't figure out why six years after the fact they would decide to ban it in Denmark. So again, of all the Universal monster movies to ban, this one feels among the most harmless. But that's just me. I'm right there with you. Like, that's a very shocking bit of trivia for me to hear you know because i was thinking about censorships the last few films and like we really haven't butted heads with them too much and i feel like they've gotten away with more than they should and now you mention this kind of stuff and it's like they don't even say god in this movie (laughs) you know like right there's no mention of any of it it's more like those invisible man films it's more like uh sci-fi stuff going on here Like, the others have some heady ideas, but this one plays like a Frankenstein's greatest hits. It's really not complicated. Like I said, there's no graphic violence. There's nothing in here that, to me, indicates that it should be censored. But this is the time we're living in. Let's get to the cast real quick. Most of these actors we have covered extensively. Hear all about them in our Wolfman episode. But we've got Sir Cedric Hardwick as Dr. Ludwig Frankenstein. He we've seen before as the villain in The Invisible Man Returns. Oh, yeah. We've got Ralph Bellamy as Eric Ernst, the town prosecutor. Lionel Atwill as Dr. Theodore Bomer. We've seen him as Inspector Krogh in the past. Bella Lugosi, of course, returning as Igor. Evelyn Ankers as Elsa Frankenstein. But we got child actor here. Now, the last time we had a child actor, I was not too keen on that performance. I think I said before <laughs> that, like, he was okay, but I feel like they could have found a better child actor. Yeah. Here we've got Janet and Gallo. She's credited with the name Klostein, but I don't recall if they ever mention her name in the film. I think they just call her the Hussman girl or the Hussman child. Yeah. Now I've got some fun stuff about her specifically with this film. Now behind the scenes, she had a very close relationship with Lon Chaney. I think I've mentioned in our Wolfman episode that like he really loved kids and he loved animals. And so it was really no surprise to me to learn that he developed some kind of relationship with her behind the scenes. Now what she had to say, I think she spoke to somebody in a 2005 interview. She said, Quote, I spent a lot of time with Lon. I was always riding his legs, his knees, sitting on his lap. He was nice, gentle with me, and easy to work with. Better than anyone else. 
I do think that that comes through in the performance. I definitely get the sense that the true Lon was coming through in his scenes with her. I'm very glad to hear that he wasn't pranking her. Right? Like he was <laughs> pulling his George Clooney's in the last movie, being the onset prankster. But yeah, you can feel like there has to be so much trust between them in this role because of the way the creature handles the child. Her performance is incredibly spellbinding. It is so sincere and honest. I couldn't believe it. it was like in the middle of this movie. And like at the end when she's like, I just want to go home. I was like, oh my God, we're going to start crying. <laughs> it's crazy. This cast was cool. Like Ralph Bellamy, you know, two movies in a row, Randolph Duke yep. again. I was kind of getting Cedric Hardwick and Lionel Atwell a little confused from scene to sure. scene. Uh, yep. So I really wished that they kind of went over the top and just cast Bella as Ludwig and recast Igor. <laughs> that would have blown <laughs> my mind. But other than that, Lionel Atwell's got a great heel turn in this. And yep. Lon Chaney, man, I said it like in the last episode, he is built for Frankenstein. Like he's great. I don't love the makeup as much. You know, he just kind of looks like he's got his eyes closed the whole movie. Like it's something with the eyelids, right? Aside from that, I buy it. But that kind of bothered me a little bit. Evelyn Anchors, she doesn't have much to do, but she's involved yeah and i think she's wearing at one point like one of the most incredible dresses we've seen oh we will get to that dress all around loving the performances loving the cast yes and so real quick i wanted to touch on this as well janet and gallo also spoke about her experiences working with cheney as the monster of the film she said quote i approached him like i was going to a favorite uncle not a monster the director yelled that maybe i should be frightened but I wasn't. Cheney even told me, you won't be scared of me. Just watch every day as they put on the makeup and change my looks. And he was right. It didn't scare me at all. And it worked better that way. I think that was the right move. It's the fact that she's not afraid of him that's so strong. If she was scared of him, that's besides the point. <laughs> like... Right. And just thematically, I love that children tend to be the least frightened of him. The girl in the original Frankenstein was not afraid of him. She wanted to play. And, you know, he unfortunately chucked her into the lake. Yeah. And they've been backpedaling on that every movie ever since. <laughs> but like, <laughs> he, he keeps becoming a, a kidnapper without meaning it. <laughs> but I have to think that the reason she was written in as a character was with that previous little girl in mind they wanted to put that image in the audience's head like oh shit here's a little kid he's gonna do something horrible to her and and in fact we get the exact opposite we get what should have happened we can see how much this monster really cares for this child in his own way yeah yeah so i, I like that they sort of write the wrong here with this new character yeah it's done much better here than in son of frankenstein with the son of the son of Frankenstein, right? Right. They're trying to sort of allude to that with, with the creature and children and that connection, but it just kind of, there's no time or room for it to play out. And here, it's like a very kind of central part of the monster's arc. Last but not least, we've got Lon Chaney as the monster, as we've already established. In the director's chair, we've got Earl C. Kenton. He was a former Keystone Cops and Abbott and Costello director known for his straightforward and uncluttered style. Is he going to do any of the Abbott and Costello monster movies? I don't believe he does any of the Universal Abbott and Costello meet the monsters movies. Seems like that was right in front of their face, but we'll find out when we get there. Yeah, he will come back, though. We will see his name again when we do House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. I think House of Dracula was his final Universal monster film. At the time, you know, he was doing a lot of comedy, but horror fans might have known him also as the director of Island of Lost Souls. Oh, I love that movie. 
See, now I have to check that one out. That's one that I that's eluded me all this time. I will definitely have to check that out. But it's interesting how Universal is now hiring traditionally comedic oriented directors to direct their monster movies. So it's almost like they know they're not really going for scares as much anymore. Well, I feel like it's appropriate. It's just kind of genre picks now, right? Like it's like, right. oh, it's a it's a comedy, it's a horror film, it's a western, it's a drama. You get a guy by all accounts like this is not like hack filmmaking or anything. I'm not saying no, that no, no, like no. but you get a guy who's like well rounded, you know, and this guy can yeah. can do this and that and this does not have a lot of comedy. It doesn't feel like slapstick or it, like this is not the mummy's hand. This is an extremely competent monster movie. I would call it a... It's not a horror film in my mind, you know? It's more of like a... I would go monster because it's got those crazy ideas as opposed to the threatening scares and looks of, like, the earlier Universal stuff in my mind. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of stuff, like, during the day, right? Like, I realized that over the past couple of movies, like, with the exception of The Wolfman. Once they started hiring these guys who had backgrounds in comedy, we're seeing a lot of monster movies set during the daytime, so you're not getting the deep shadows necessarily you're not getting that spooky atmosphere you're getting monster action maybe a romance story in there somewhere which is totally fine you know like i said this is going to be sort of the norm for a while uh, as we get through this era then we're going to go full tilt comedy once we get to the abbott and costello movies and the only thing breaking that up really is the creature from the black lagoon so yeah this is a good primer for what's to come at least for the next i guess for us it'll be like the next year or so well, I'm looking forward to it again. As, like I said earlier, like it couldn't be the Wolfman again, right? It's Frankenstein right. 4, for crying out yeah. loud. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But for that, and even more than that, I really enjoyed it. Like I, I would put this higher, I think, on the list. So I haven't done my list yet. I have to get around to that. But at the very, very end, we'll do a special episode and, and go down our lists. See, I, I kind of view this whole series of movies similarly to how I view like the James Bond franchise. I'm a, I'm a big James Bond fan as well. And, you know, you've got your top five or maybe top 10 of the best James Bond movies of all time. But then, like, for me, I've got my comfort James Bond movies as well. You know, like, sometimes I just want to watch like a, a Roger Moore movie that's maybe not that good, but it's like a, putting on a comfortable sweater, you know, or like a warm blanket. Like it's just, it scratches the itch and it gives me exactly what I want without overcomplicating things. And I think that this era of the Universal Monsters speaks to me in much the same way. I don't view them as bad movies, but I do separate them from what I consider to be some of the best films ever made. Yeah, absolutely. I also think a lot lately when comparing the Universal Monster series to stuff as like the Godzilla movies, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That original one is a masterpiece. Like there's no two ways about it. But then like there are certain eras, like literal eras of Godzilla movies, like every decade or so they restart it and they do different things and it changes with the times. But like it goes from like that dead serious stuff where we started here and it ends up with him doing his Captain Planet thing with Jet Jaguar by the end, right? Like. It <laughs> It just really goes and conforms to a different genre and a different tone and everything. And so, like, while watching these movies, I'm getting, like, very much the same sort of flow with them. And so, like, now that we're here and I'm in the mindset of kind of, like, do anything you want with Frankenstein, like, we've already seen sort of, like, the best of the best. Like, I, I'm open to it, you know? I'm open to it. And I'm going to just try and, and have fun with it. Definitely. Real quick, before we get into the movie itself, I've got a few more credits I want to mention. Returning for special effects is our old pal John P. Fulton. Um, a lot of his work is present in the scene where the villagers of Frankenstein blow up 
the old Frankenstein castle. Those are some of the best uh, set pieces in the whole film. We've got Jack Otterson with the production design, which all but does away with the dark shadowy expression of sets of the previous films, as I mentioned, but still I find them to be impressive, competent laboratory castle sets. You know, like everything looks pretty good. Yeah, there's something about the, the mansion that is very kind of like overwhelming. It, it feels like the house on Haunted Hill or something, right? Yep. Like there's something like that quality to it. And so instead of the deep shadow stuff, we get this almost more what you get with like a hammer horror film kind of vibe. We've got two directors of photography here. We've got Elwood Brindle, who was the DP on The Invisible Woman, and Milton Krasner, who was the DP on The Invisible Man Returns. I couldn't really find a whole lot of information as to why this movie had two DPs, but it did. So these two guys were credited for the cinematography. For what it's worth, I think the whole film has a consistent look to it, so I think they must have worked pretty well together. Yeah, you could have fooled me. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed it if I hadn't looked it up. And then lastly, we've got a score by Hans J. Salter, which would be reused many times over the next several years. So we will be hearing this music, the original music, again uh, as we get through the rest of these monster movies. All right. Well, let's get into the movie. Let's not waste any more time here. We've got an opening credit sequence, which is pretty simple, but you know, I like the logo of the title screen, as I like to call it. But the thing that is most interesting to me about this whole opening credit sequence is that I'm pretty sure that they used footage from the Wolfman set in the background. Oh, this is all about reusing footage, so. <laughs> yes. I'm almost positive that the foggy forest and like these dark trees was all repurposed footage from the Wolfman. So take another look at that when you get a chance because I would love to be proven wrong about that. The movie picks up. It's not explicitly stated how long after the previous Frankenstein film that this is set. I read somewhere that it might have been four years. That seems like a stretch, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, it feels more like four weeks. It feels like Wolf was just run out of town. Right. And they've been hearing like Igor rustling around back to life. What's strange to me is that there are references to Wolf's exile from the town. But if you remember, he kind of left on really good terms at the end of Son of Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, but it was still like, don't ever come back, right? It was like, boy, I'm glad that's over. I never want to go through that again. See you never in your life. Whatever you do, don't come back. Well, whatever the case may be, the village of, of the town of Frankenstein are pissed. They believe <laughs> that there is some kind of curse that's now on their town. The fields are barren. There are no tourists. No one's coming to visit this town and, and bring revenue into their town. I hate to sound like a broken record, Dan, but just rename the damn town, guys. What have you been waiting for? That's, all, that's the only time I'm bringing that up tonight. People are starving. Even one villager refers to it as the curse of Frankenstein. And why the movie wasn't called The Curse of Frankenstein, I have no idea. Granted, that is a fantastic title, and I myself was wondering why this was called The Ghost of Frankenstein, until the actual fucking Ghost of Frankenstein <laughs> shows up. Yes, we'll definitely get there, but I feel like, in hindsight, if we have those two things to choose from, The Curse of Frankenstein works so much better for me than The Ghost of Frankenstein. Yeah, and when we get to that scene, I'm not entirely sure what's going on there isn't in... Ludwig's own head. I just wish that they did more there, but we'll get there. <laughs> 
So the villagers are basically giving the, the town mayor an ultimatum. Uh, he's not the burgomaster here. I read somewhere that in production they changed burgomaster to mayor in order to sort of Americanize the role a little bit, given what was happening in Europe at the time. They wanted to sort of distance this narrative from Germany, even though it's very clear to anybody who's paying attention that this is all set in a Germanic region. That explains why Lionel Atwell is playing a different character, because as I think we remarked in the previous one, that the imagery was very Nazi-esque, and, and yes. they wanted to steer very far from that. And so they're really upset, and they basically give him this ultimatum where if he doesn't do something about that Frankenstein castle, there will be a new mayor next election. Which, that's the tried and true method of getting your elected officials to do things, right? Yeah, this is certainly mob rule <laughs> here at the start. <laughs> yes. One of the great things about this scene, I want to point out before we move on, is that one of those villagers is one of our favorite Universal Monster actors. Did you catch him? I see him in the credits, but I didn't see him while I was watching. Yeah, Dwight Fry is one of those villagers. See, I wasn't sure if he was listed because of the flashback footage. Oh, right. So Dwight Fry, I think, will appear once or twice more. But I love seeing him here because it's his only real performance in the movie. Like you said, the rest was stock footage, for, or I'm sorry, uh, recycled footage from the original Frankenstein. Just love, love seeing him show up here. I love this whole opening. It is so intense. I was not expecting this. Usually these movies kind of like ease you into him, at least with one scene of like someone approaching the town or something like that but no this is just town hall meeting everyone's pissed and they're like Igor's not killable like what is it Dan what is Igor like we have to reclassify him as his own creature yeah they've hanged him they've shot him they've like sulfur pitted this guy like they've done everything and he's bounced back and like he's more vital than before why does he want a new body in this movie he's indestructible right they are not having any of this shit in Son of Frankenstein he brags about how you know they hanged him and they couldn't kill him then so I don't entirely understand why now after he he was shot a bunch of times by Wolf in the previous film. He's still alive. Why he is seeking immortality. Like, he seems to be doing okay. Now, I could understand that the creature's body's twice the size, maybe. Maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe there's another thing about the time span, too. Like, we don't know how long he takes to regenerate or, or something like that. So it could have been four years, right? And then they suddenly, they start hearing, like, that stupid flute playing and everything. And they're like, someone's back from the castle. The mayor is insisting that the, the castle's been vacant ever since the monster fell into the sulfur pit and Wolf left town. But the villagers insist that there's still something about this castle that is wrong and they will feel better if they can just destroy it. It's Dwight Fry who suggests that they blow it up. But yeah, people hear Igor's horn from outside. So they, they just, they know something's wrong. So the mayor sort of at a loss, I think at the threat of losing the next election, gives them permission to do what they will with the Frankenstein castle. And so they immediately storm out and make plans to destroy this place. Meanwhile, Igor has in fact been inhabiting this castle for whatever length of time has passed since Son of Frankenstein. As they show up, there's a great sequence where, you know, he sees them approach and he starts dropping concrete slabs, like those stones. Wonderful. Yeah, didn't he try that shit in the last movie too when Wolf started like approaching the castle and he's like, I didn't know it was you, but like, that's my security system. He's like, I just push shit off the top of the castle. That's, <laughs> that's right. 
So as the villagers start blowing up Frankenstein Castle, what they do by accident is release the Frankenstein monster. Like, so what's happened is that sort of like Han Solo frozen in carbonite, he has been preserved in the sulfur pit that he fell into. And so the explosions have loosened the, the stone around him. And Igor, recognizing that his friend is still alive, immediately starts pulling him from the rubble. And then they immediately leave town and, and head for greener pastures. I love this accidental, coincidental kind of chain reaction thing that's like going on here is like the villagers are blowing up the castle, but it releases the creature and they flee the town. So the villagers are like, they don't know. They just see the castle burning to the ground. So they're done. (laughs) The curse has been lifted, I feel, or like they're in the clear as far as they're concerned. I thought the whole kind of preserved and sulfur thing was fascinating because like, I don't care really about the science of all that stuff. Sure. The only thing that really matters to me is you just can't destroy this thing that way. They'll get to it at the end of the movie. The only way to kill them is to take them apart piece by piece. So, like, I thought that was really interesting kind of workaround or interesting way to get him back into the movie. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and I just kept thinking during the whole scene, like, if these people hadn't been so paranoid and hysterical and they had just left well enough alone, everything would have been okay. It's because of them deciding they have to destroy the castle that the monster gets loose again. I love that though how like no one is aware of their actions or the repercussions. Is, yeah. Is like... Yeah, because Igor and the monster leave town, so presumably throughout this whole movie the people in Frankenstein are happy again. Like out of sight out of mind. Yes. Little do they know that in another town not too far from them, those people are getting a taste of what they've been experiencing for the past couple of years. We get that really great sequence like directly after two where they're like wandering through a graveyard during the storm. Yep. I love that. That moment is so weird. <laughs> so cool. Like that to me was one of the sequences that really harkened back to the, the beginning of Frankenstein or the, you know, the first two films anyway. Seeing the monster kind of walk through a foggy cemetery just always looks right to me. Yeah, and it was like that we haven't really gotten much of, but like the arms outstretched creature walking blindly, like feeling his way around and stuff. And then I was like, what's he doing? Is he trying to get struck by lightning? And he is, and he does, and it's awesome. And he gets like a power up or something like he's regenerated. Yeah. And it's so fun. I love the way that this movie establishes that the monster is now this superhuman, possibly immortal creature. Throughout that whole sequence, like it's a lightning storm. Igor's trying to get him to come into safety, you know, into the cave or whatever. The monster gets struck by lightning and we learn that that's kind of what gives him his strength. Sort of like Superman with the sun. He needs to be able to harness that lightning to give him the strength and vitality that he needs to live forever. Yeah, he needs to be, like, recharged every once in a while. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> and, and Igor even reiterates points that he made in Son of Frankenstein about how Frankenstein was his father and Lightning was his mother. And I think that's what puts the idea in Igor's head. If he can harness the power of Lightning and this thing can live forever, then the two of them will go on to rule the world together. Like, that's his master plan. And what I love about Igor in this is like, he's a little more sort of level-headed or like at one point he'll tell the one doctor, he'll be like, we'll rule the state. 
then maybe the country, and then we'll see what happens. Maybe the world. I like how this time he's like, let's just take care of this one town, and then we'll go slowly. We'll just expand and expand and expand like that. Yeah, no, I, I love watching Bella get these monologues. I almost, like for a brief period of time, I was reminded of that monologue he has in Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster about creating a race of supermen that will conquer the world. It's very similar to that. And I mean that in a good way. You know, my, this is probably as good as time as any to say, like, this is Bella's movie to me, you know? Yeah, like, oh yeah. It, it's like remarkable how much he's the lead here and he's the strongest and all that. That's why I was almost like, why? It's like, why didn't they just make him Frankenstein this time and give that role, you know, that kind of gravitas? Because like, not for nothing, I think Ludwig is kind of second string Frankenstein. You know, he is the second lost brother or whatever. But I don't know. I just feel like Igor has like this weight. It's so cool that it turned out to be like the Bella film that I was not expecting. Yeah, they're definitely trying to make Ludwig the main character of this movie, but I don't think that the script really gives Cedric Hardwick enough to do to make the role as pronounced as it should be. But with Bella reciting these great lines and monologues, it, he becomes the sort of main character here, right? Or at least he becomes the one that I am most entertained watching. I don't want to short shift uh, Cedric Hardwick here. I think he's a fantastic actor and he's doing the best he can with the material. But next to Bella here, it's tough to compete with him, you know? Yeah. This is where Igor, like early on, right? He's like, we will go to the other brother. <laughs> right. We will find him. And I'm sure he has like the journals and stuff. And he'll take, you know, like that. That was fun. I just love how they're like, sure, there's another brother. Why not? Yeah. I mean, realistically speaking, I, I heard that line and I'm thinking, okay, well, now they're just sort of running out of material. They're just going to keep creating brothers or, or sons of Frankenstein to keep the story going, right? But part of it makes like complete and total sense that it would be a big family because they're so rich and they're almost like the Rockefellers or the Kennedys or something in my mind. Yeah. And like there's misfit ones and there's political ones and there's like, you know, extreme sports ones or whatever. <laughs> the, the Frankensteins are all around and like some of them are mad scientists. <laughs> yeah, we haven't met the Frankenstein son who attempted a rap career yet, but we're getting there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Never know. We actually, we get introduced to Ludwig in the very next sequence. We learn that he is a brain surgeon. One thing I do love about all of the Frankenstein men is that they are all men of science. In this case, Ludwig is a brain surgeon who, in this scene, this scene where we're introduced with him, he has removed a brain from a human skull, operated on it, and then returned it. And he's done it successfully. And that is a major advancement in medical science. Yeah, I don't think we could. Can we do that today? Like, I'm not sure... <laughs> as possible today. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a brain surgeon. I can't speak to it. I don't know that they take the brain out and work on it and put it back. I mean, but we certainly have brain surgery. Yeah, yeah. I just love how they're predicting the science and yes. all that, you know, because like I feel like for the most part, all this stuff about brain surgery is kind of recent. Now, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a medical doctor i'm not a historian and things you know but i've watched the nick on hbo uh so like i know there's just been a lot of like experimental brain surgery going on since the turn of the century and that's kind of also what one of my favorite movies planet of the apes is like all about you know men have been experimenting on monkeys so they made the movie where the monkeys experiment on the men so uh, it just struck me as this must be kind of like either in the news or at the forefront of medical science and, and technology and stuff and then it, it fits so perfectly 
perfectly with the Frankenstein story because of the brain mix-up in the first movie. You know, like brains mm-hmm. have always kind of had a connection and brain surgery and the fascination with that to Frankenstein. Right. The next thing that happens in this sequence that I think is very important to the overall story is we learn a little bit about Dr. Bomer. There's a conversation between he and Dr. Kettering. Ludwig Frankenstein leaves after the operation to go compose his notes, leaving Dr. Bomer and Dr. Kettering alone. In their discussion, we learn that Bomer was Frankenstein's teacher at one point. He was like sort of the the teacher and Frankenstein was the pupil, and then he made a mistake. They don't really shed lights on the specifics of his mistake, but safe to say, you know, he, he fucked something up and lost credibility. And now he works as Frankenstein's subordinate, his assistant. And that will come into play later on as Igor starts turning the wheels, you know, of his of his grand scheme. I really like that moment there because it's great setup and I forget about it throughout the film because Bomer becomes kind of a sympathetic character and involved and it's not until like much later do you realize he's got his own motives and he makes his turn and you're like, oh right, he didn't like Ludwig to begin with. There is this something happened before the movie where Bomer was on top and Ludwig Ludwig was on bottom and now Ludwig's on top and Bomer's on bottom and like Ludwig doesn't seem to like have any of this on his mind but it is just scratching away at Bomer like all day long. Yes. I love that the the movie sows that seed early. We like we recognize Lionel Atwill, right? So we know he's going to be an important character somewhere. And so just getting that little bit of his backstory is just so great. So now we've got Igor and the monster arriving in town. He runs into a like sort of a a milkmaid? What would you say? Like, she's dressed kind of like a St. Pauli's girl, right? I'm half Norwegian, and I have photos of, like, my mom dressed up like this when she was a teenager, you know? Like, total Scandinavian country girl. She's shepherding geese or swans uh, through the town, but she establishes that Igor and the monster have arrived in Vesaria, the home of Dr. Ludwig Frankenstein. And so he uses this interaction to figure out where Ludwig lives before he can make his way to this castle, Frankenstein. The monster has his interaction with little Klostein. This sequence was very surreal how they just kind of strolled into town in the middle of the morning. And I'm like, yes. the first person to see these two people are going to be, are going to like lose their mind. And sure enough, like this woman could barely keep it together enough to like string a sentence. And she is like visibly distraught at like these two individuals that have just arrived into her town. What strikes me as unusual is that if years have passed since events of at least Son of Frankenstein, if not Bride and, and the original Frank. I mean, we're, we're talking a long time. Does news not travel to this area? I feel like they should have known that this creature existed, but it's almost like they exist out of time here. Yeah, but we come to find out that Ludwig moved here and like kept everything on the down low. Like that's why he's here because no one's heard of him or no one knows about that incident at least. Right. I still find it a little bit strange that like no one's heard about this. I think that's one of the major flaws in the logic of the narrative. I'm not going to pick it apart too much. He and Igor walked there from the village of Frankenstein. They're not that far. But then again, like how many people believed it until they saw it with their own eyes in the first three movies? It's that thing too. It's like you've heard the stories about Frankenstein's dad and his crazy monster and it's like oh that can't be true and it's like don't worry our Frankenstein is just a brain surgeon like he'll never do that kind of stuff or or, you know like I don't I don't know I'm just trying to play devil's advocate 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. I guess if if you frame it that way, I can sort of believe. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because this movie's just moving, you know, so quickly. I do love though how like thematically the Frankenstein's have to be like king shit wherever they live, and like <laughs> it's like where does he live? Oh, he lives in the huge chateau at the end of town that like overlooks everything. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, even though he's a doctor, he does seem to be an authority to a lot of people. Yeah, and he's not the only doctor in town. That's the no. other, like that's what's so strange about it too. Is like he's just fucking rich. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so the scene with the little girl plays out just about the way we expect it to for the most part. He doesn't kill her accidentally like the last time. But in this case, she's playing with a ball and some kids kick her ball up onto a roof. Yeah, classic Biff Tannen bully shit. Oh, hell yeah. The monster helps her get her ball down off of the roof. But in doing so, you know, alarms the entire town. One guy climbs up, he like scales the building, climbs up to the roof. And when he tries to get the little girl, the monster just sort of whacks him off the ledge in what is, I think, maybe really the only stunt in this movie. It's a great stunt. The guy gets knocked, what, like at least two stories off onto the concrete. And the monster gives the little girl up. You know, he comes down and she asks him to bring her back down to her dad, which is so sweet. (laughs) This sequence was like, I was losing my shit. Like I had such bad anxiety during this entire sequence. (laughs) Like I knew it was a movie and stuff, but first of all, the bullying thing. And it's so sweet how like Frankenstein's monster sees the little girl like getting bullied and wanders over. And she's like, can you get my ball? And it's way up there. And he like picks her up under his arm and they climb up the building. And I'm like, oh no. (laughs) don't do that like just go get it and and yeah rightfully everyone freaks out and their dad's like this maniac this maniac like that's the most interesting thing is like maybe because dr frankenstein lives in their town and and they know about like neuroscience like they don't think this is a monster they think this is like a crazy person you know like they think he's like an insane man immediately that's kind of an interesting twist to everything they're treating him like a mental patient or something you know what i mean like i don't know exactly how to phrase it properly or anything but i I like the context here what if this was in color is he green like they don't even notice yeah like any of that kind of shit going on with him it's just like oh here's like a sick man we have to figure out what's happening with him and maybe we can help him or something yeah i think about in episodes of the monsters when herman would go out into public people would take one look at him and be terrified the frame rate would increase by like tenfold right but here yeah you're right they don't treat him as though he is this monster it doesn't even seem to register that he is like this undead creature they treat him as though he is mentally ill you know like that he needs treatment but uh, yeah of course as soon as he gives the little girl back to her father after being told that you know no harm would come to him the entire crowd of people descend on him cops villagers and we're back to the old you know fighting against the mob sort of situations that this monster has found himself in before but they're able to subdue him which i was shocked so the next scene is we get introduced a couple more characters. We're introduced to Elsa Frankenstein, played by Evelyn Ankers, and we are introduced to Eric, the prosecutor, played by Ralph Bellamy. And it's clear that they have a sort of romantic relationship. That goes nowhere, <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> yeah, like that's the thing. They're romantically involved, and I think that the fact that we just saw the two actors together in The Wolfman sort of helps fill in some of the gaps that are left by the script, because this script really doesn't give them a whole lot to do but we have seen them interact with each other before so like as monster movie fans i think we can give them a little more credit than than maybe they deserve here yeah i just it would have been nice if 
they were engaged or a little more lip service was just paid to their relationship, I guess, status. Yeah, I just was never really sure. You mentioned before about how like this could have maybe been a little bit longer, maybe another 10 minutes or so. This is a good place where I feel like they could have expanded just to give these two great actors a little more to do, develop their relationship. Yeah, but then again, they don't really, each of them, like, they show back up, but they're not really integral to much of the movie, you know? Like, that's kind of, like, at the end, Eric comes back for a few minutes, but Elsa is mostly used for exposition scenes, which are cool scenes and, and useful and stuff, but like I'm saying, like, they're not central characters. Yeah, I mean, I, feel, I almost feel like you could eliminate them entirely and the movie would still pretty much be the same, which is unfortunate given the fact that they're in this movie, uh, you know, contributing to it. I would love to see them be more important to the story. After that, we get a scene where Ludwig is informed by his housekeeper that he has a visitor from the village of Frankenstein. And before he goes to meet with Igor... He explicitly tells her not to mention a word of this to his daughter. You know, it's, this is where we sort of establish that he's been trying to keep his whole family drama secret from everybody. Yeah, and this is when I was wondering where Mrs. Frankenstein might be off to. It's kind of weird that we get the maid, Martha the maid, but we don't get Mrs. Frankenstein anyway. And we never, there's no reference to her the entire movie. It was a little strange. That maybe we could also flesh out next time around. But I did like that little moment there because it like makes you go, oh, he's been trying to hide this. He's about to be in some like deep water. Like he probably hasn't seen Igor since he was like two years old or something. <laughs> Does he remember Igor? Like, it's that's what I was trying to think of. How old was he when the creature was created? Like, did it have an after? Does he Is he familiar with who Igor is? I mean, he does have his dad's journals and his brother's amendments to the journals. But, like, right. this, this was, like, going to be a very fun scene for me to be like, oh, he's about to see Igor after forever. Yeah, some of this is unclear, right? Because in Son of Frankenstein, Wolf is returning to his home from being away, right? And Igor was a new character to Wolf, so I don't know that Igor was always in the picture. And at what point Ludwig decided to leave, I don't know necessarily that Ludwig and Igor had met before, but Igor was certainly aware of Ludwig because he was very intimately aware of Frankenstein family. The timeline doesn't make a ton of sense, or at least they don't really shed the light on it. So I, I really have no idea. It is very kind of brazen of Igor too, to just like walk up to the front door and knock. <laughs> well, I mean, he knows that Ludwig is trying to keep that whole family history secret, right? So he has a card to play. And that's exactly what he reveals in this scene. He explains to Ludwig that the monster is the maniac that is being held downtown. I think I may have forgotten to mention that the whole reason for Eric showing up in the first place was not just to establish his relationship with Elsa Frankenstein, but to tell Ludwig about this man they picked up downtown who might be uh, deranged or, and they need his input as a brain surgeon, right? So he's already planning to go down there. Now we have Igor saying, no, that man that they have down at the police station is your father's creation and you're going to help me keep him alive, right? Like that's the blackmail is that you're going to help me do this or I'm going to tell everybody who you are. Yeah, yeah. It's really clear cut and simple and I love it. Like that's the plan. It's like, if you don't do this, I'm just going to tell everybody you're responsible for that monster. <laughs> And it's, it's not a bad plan, honestly. Blackmail, you know, it's a classic, right? Igor is a very smart monster man. His appearance is one thing, but his brain, as we'll come to find out, is super cunning. And like, yeah, he's a very sharp dude. And the thing that Ludwig did not want to happen is his daughter, Elsa, gets sort of a glimpse at this 
other life, right? As Igor makes his way out of the house, they make eye contact, the two of them. Yeah, he lies to her about who he was. Yeah, the lies begin to start, right? Oh, and you know what else begins to start? The secret passageways. Yes. There are so many, and it's like the greatest thing on earth. The first one we get is in this bookshelf, which I think is hilarious because like he pulls, you know, it's the classic, like he pulls the thing out of the bookshelf and it reveals like this little case, but he just hid another book in the bookshelf. Like, (laughs) I just thought that was kind of funny, you know, not for any particular reason, but it's just like, wait, it's a bookshelf. Just put it on the shelf. Like no one's going to know it's a secret. Anyway. Yeah, I feel like you can't be a self-respecting Frankenstein unless your house has a bunch of hidden compartments and passageways. And like, it seems like the Frankensteins are set up for devious behavior. <laughs> well, yeah, they're experts at secrets, right? Like that's their whole gimmick. And like, they're going to have secret bookshelves and secret passageways and like secret floors and then like secret walls under your secret floor to the other secret little thing. And it just keeps going. It's like a nesting doll of secret passageways yeah. and, and it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm sure that the secret bookcase was all Ludwig had in mind in terms of just like keeping secrets. I feel like the underground, the operating room and that sort of holding room that he puts the monster in. Like, I'm sure all of that had a legitimate purpose uh, and it wasn't meant for any sort of, you know, skullduggery. Possibly, but it looked like a cell, that one room, and it seemed a little more sort of nefarious than necessary. I don't get the sense that he set out to be nefarious, but the house sure came in handy once he decided to go down that road. That much I know for sure. I'm just saying he's probably locked up some madmen down there before to experiment on their brains. That's all, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> but this is cool. What he's hiding there is his dad's diary. And I was like, oh, sick. And then he turns a page and it's like, and amendments by Wolf. Oh, no, he's got two different books. He's got his dad's journal and then he's got Wolf's notes. I just thought that was adorable. Whereas like, here's the main notes. And then and then Wolf was like, and here's what I found out too. It's almost like in old movies where they had like, a box that would say dynamite or like a bag with a dollar sign on it. Right, right. Obviously, okay, these are obviously his dad's notes and his brother's notes. Got it. Couldn't be any more clear than that. How did he acquire that shit? I have to imagine Wolf just sent it to him, but who knows? Yeah, I don't know because with each Frankenstein, they ultimately come out on the other end thinking I've made a huge mistake. I should destroy this, you know, like I can't imagine why either Henry or Wolf would want to preserve their notes. So how Ludwig got a hold of both sets of notes, no idea. So like this just further sort of goes with the multi multiple years later kind of idea. Like maybe he went back to the castle at one point to kind of like cover some tracks. Right. In case they did break in and find his name on something. This is the thing about this movie and, you know, the next bunch is that they're not going to hold up under this amount of scrutiny. But it is fun to think about. You know, like, I do think that maybe in the effort of preserving his family honor, that he would not go himself, send somebody to remove anything from the castle that might be um, incriminating, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's conceivable that he might go that extra step. But, yeah, I have no legitimate idea how he got a hold of any of this stuff. But either way, it doesn't matter because it's really an awesome moment. It's such a great moment. I was like, oh, shit, the notes. I was like, he's going to be able to do this. And then one day he's going to 
have volume three. It's going to say, <laughs> you know, Henry Frankenstein's notes and then amendments by Wolf. And then it's going to say, and also me Ludwig's. Yeah. Now I like, I don't remember. I think the next Frankenstein film we'll get to is Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And now I want to like, see if there's any mention of, you know, previous generations of notes. I feel like there's a, uh, a young Frankenstein joke that I'm forgetting. The next scene, we are at the courthouse, right? And we have the monster chained up and he's going to go before a judge. Eric is there as the prosecutor in the hopes that he can get this, well, this man diagnosed as some sort of lunatic before trying him as a criminal. But like they can't get any information out of him. Yeah, I felt like it might be a meta moment where he's on the stand. Frankenstein's monster is on the stand, first of all. I had to like wrap my mind around what I was watching for a minute. That's like part of, again, what I meant by it's like surreal. They're putting the creature on trial. He's literally in a courtroom and there's like a lawyer going, state your name for the record. And I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. (laughs) That's an impossible thing to answer he doesn't even have a name you know like it's just so wild I I love how many levels that like one little moment works on but again like this whole courtroom thing is like I never would have imagined in a billion years they would have treated the creature like this that not just universal but so like at the beginning I was like this movie feels like a bunch of people just felt like hey I got an idea want to do this and like yeah why not like let's see if it works it's like you want to put monster on trial yeah sure let's see what happens and like no one said no to anything none of it's like bad I'm not saying it's bad right but I'm just saying it was such a shift in my head because I'm thinking are we putting like monster movies on trial is Frankenstein the series like are we trying to say something about I think there's something to that. A scene like this would have played maybe better a few years earlier, like in the 30s, when Hollywood took that sort of hiatus on horror films. So like maybe that would have been the time to have a scene like this. Then it really would have worked on like many, many levels. Here in the 40s, I don't think it hits as hard as it could, but I do think there's something to that. The horror movies in general were on trial at a certain point and we're a few years too late for that. But but yeah, we can definitely read that here. Yeah, it's really cool. I wish I had more insight into that point. You know, it, it just kind of occurred to me while I was watching it and I didn't have time to flesh any of that out. But I feel like maybe down the line, that's something to look more into. But I love the way the rest of this scene plays out. I mean, I still think it makes like very interesting points about what's going on in the world, right? During the war, there's a lot of paranoia about your neighbor and thing. And so like, this could be sort of like putting them on trial and like what the Nazis were doing, rounding up citizens. And like, this kind of has a little bit of that maybe social commentary going on and stuff. But like all this stuff that ha- ends up happening with the child is just like so pitch perfect. I think that is their ultimate point, right? Is that, oh, the creature isn't inherently evil. He's pretty docile, actually. It's just the way you are perceiving him is the way that he is kind of treating you. That's sort of how I get from this Frankenstein. It's like, if you're mean to this Frankenstein, it's going to be mean to you. But if you're nice to it, it's going to be nice to you. Like, it's almost like this mirror of the person talking to them. Yeah, I think this scene is important if only to really underline that idea that the monster is not inherently evil. We see the way he interacts with the little girl. It's clear to everybody who's watching, except the people in the room, this monster responds well to kind 
kindness. And when they start becoming aggressive with him is when he starts lashing out. And so I don't know why the, the, the response by this town is to like mob up and get the torches and pitchforks and like beat the shit out of them. But anyway, the thing that I find interesting about this scene is that the monster recognizes Ludwig, but I don't know why. And that sort of gets back into what we were talking about in terms of like Frankenstein timeline. When would the monster have ever been in the same room with Ludwig? The thing that I got from that too was just like he senses this is a Frankenstein. Yeah. I didn't feel so much that he recognized Ludwig, but he recognized like, oh, maybe we're brothers, right? And there's that awesome moment in the courtroom when the creature gets loose and Ludwig just stands there like a statue and doesn't flinch. And that thing like comes at him and stops. A br- it's like, a, that's that was an awesome moment. Like that's some great staging there. I thought that was terrific. Yeah, then they peace out and he like jumps into a wagon. I love sort of the contrast here between like Ludwig and his brother Wolf in that Ludwig shows no fear in front of this monster, whereas Wolf was like terrified. Is there something more there about maybe Ludwig is trying to like face his fears whereas wolf was kind of trying to run from his fears or something or like run from their name and you know it kind of just seems like ludwig has been waiting for this he's like i knew this day would come yeah it definitely has that energy yeah maybe it's subtextual maybe it's not even there and i'm it's it's an invention of my own but like in that scene it very much feels like he's prepared to die you know this monster kills me that's okay he won't have to worry about his family history anymore at this point, he'd be—he's better off dead in his mind. He's like, if I just die, then this—then like, I won't have to deal with any of it. It's just so dark because this is another suicidal character. He never—he's not like Larry Talbot, where he's like begging people eventually to be like, you know, kill me, kill me, or anything. But like, there is that sense that he's dead inside now. That it's like he has no choice, and he's not strong enough to like fight any of this. Yeah, I don't get the sense that he's like eager to face it, but at the same time, he seems the most mature of the Frankensteins in terms of dealing with this issue. Some of it has to do with the fact that he's been sort of emotionally detached from it. It was his father's mistake, and then his brother continued that mistake. I'm not going to be part of this. And if the, you know, in that moment, if the monster were to have killed him, I think, like you said, it was sort of like he was waiting for that day. It's weird because now, like, the curse just shifted to him. Right. And and now he's determined to make up for the mistakes of his brother and father, which is interesting how it plays out. Yeah. And he also seems to be like the oldest Frankenstein, like the one that has to deal with it, but like the latest in life. Maybe a lot of that comes in. Like I've already had my full life, like my wonderful daughter, my beloved wife and all this kind of stuff. Like it's my time. That's a little bit confusing. I think that Ludwig is supposed to be the second son. He's the younger brother. But he does carry himself in a much more mature fashion. I'm not sure if Cedric Hardwick was older than Basil Rathbone. It could also just be like, you know, again, like the time gap. He could be younger, but like it takes place later, that kind of thing. Just for shits and giggles, I looked it up and Cedric Hardwick is one year younger than Basil Rathbone. So it is conceivable that he would be the younger brother. But man, does he look old here. (laughs) Like the bags under the eyes. Basil Rathbone looks so young and fresh faced in Son of Frankenstein. Cedric Hardwick here just looks old and weary. I love that whole first meeting of Ludwig and the monster. So Igor lures the monster out of the courtroom with his horn, gets him into a cart, and then immediately like speeds out of town. Now, we get the dress you were talking about at the top of the show or somewhere near the top of the show. 
the Vera West dress that looks like, I mean, I don't know if you got this, but it kind of looks like these giant monster claws are coming up over Evelyn Anker's body. Yeah, they're basically coming up each side of her legs, up her chest, and like grabbing her breasts. It looks like a shadow is like grabbing her from below or behind. I saw that dress and Dan, I've been trying to design a pinup tattoo for a while now and this dress might be in the running for some of the design of that tattoo because it was just like graphically that's perfect. It says everything. Yeah, I love the simple design, the two-tone colors. Yeah, this is one of the more striking outfits we've seen in a Universal Monster movie in some time. And I and I love how it looks on Evelyn Anchors. Like I said, she's great in the scenes when she has stuff to do. You know, the movie just doesn't give her a, a whole lot, but she just looks so good in it. It almost belongs on Dracula's daughter, though. That's sort of like the flair I got from it. Like, it's crazy how when I came to fashion, we have, I, I feel like I haven't been as aware as maybe I should have been while we've been watching these movies because, like, this just really stands out. And I'm surprised we haven't seen stuff like spiderweb dresses or crazy patterns and designs on, on more of, like, the female characters. Just to give you an extra clue with an image as to what's happening sort of internally with this character. So, like, it was really appreciative to see that expressed in her wardrobe. Yeah. This is the scene where she becomes aware of the family history, right? She makes her way into Ludwig's office. He has left his father and brother's journals out on his desktop, which seems irresponsible. Right. But she immediately, like, starts reading them. And this is where we get the flashback sequences. I think it's about five minutes or so of, uh, of flashbacks. I didn't realize it was, like, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 level... We're going to rewatch the first movie in the middle of this movie situation, but it is a lot, but I loved it. It's obviously a cost-saving move for Universal to reuse the old footage to sort of catch everybody up. Because remember, this is it's 1942. We haven't seen the original Frankenstein. I shouldn't say we haven't seen it since 1931. It was running in like double features and stuff. Just to catch everybody up, in case you hadn't seen the Frankenstein movies up to this point, they recycle all that footage. They did replace the shot of the monster's face. That was a shot of Lon Chaney in the Frankenstein makeup. I, I really feel like this is a great use of the medium. Like you said, like catching people up because like there's no VHS and like, yeah, Frankenstein was playing here and there and everything, but these people have probably not seen that in a long time. So it's just really great how she finds the diary. And I'm thinking maybe dad wants to get caught on some subconscious level here. He's just, these are little cries for help. I'll leave the diary out. Don't mention Igor. She starts reading the diary and it dissolves into the flashback from the first movie. And I think that is brilliant. Brilliant. And like underneath, it, it reminds me of like Coppola's Dracula, where you can kind of see the writing yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. superimposed. I thought that was such a great touch, the way that they handled all of this. And so I thought it was a really smart thing to do was to be like, hey, we're going to go back and show you this very important moment, you know, that we're going to try and recreate later with a twist. Yeah, I thought it worked really well. Yeah, I think it works well until the titular ghost of Frankenstein shows up. I feel like they should have done one or the other because, you know, we see this old footage and we see Colin Clive as Ludwig's father. And then later in the movie, we see that same character represented also by Cedric Hardwick. So because both things are in the same movie, it's more difficult for me to suspend my disbelief. I fully hear you and I think you're correct. But, you know, once we get there, I could sort of try and 
and express it more, but like I was so blown away that there's an actual ghost in this movie. It didn't even occur to me. Oh, we just we saw this character and it's it's a completely different version of the same character we just saw. The only thing I could come up with is like we needed two different characters to find out the same information without like telling each other, I guess. The daughter needs to find out about her grandfather and then Ludwig needs to find out about what his dad did, so they find that out in two separate ways. It would have been great if he just like read out loud to the of the diary to her. She's like, "What is this? What what is this?" And he's like, all right, it's time to learn about your dark history. Right. But I will not, I would not change that ghost scene for a minute. As Elsa is reading her family history, I believe it's a dark and stormy night. Igor and Frankenstein monster appear in the window, scare the shit out of her. They have come to make good on Igor's blackmail. As Ludwig is trying to explain the situation to his daughter, Igor and the monster break into the mansion. They kill Dr. Kettering, and we get this really cool home security system. Ludwig's house is set up in such a way that he can sort of seal off portions of it and fill those areas with... It's not necessarily a... I mean, it becomes a deadly gas later, but in this scene, it is just a gas that knocks those unconscious. Yeah, it's knockout gas. I'm sure... Yeah, he's got all kinds of gases at his disposal. It's like the Batcave. <laughs> it is. He's like Batman, yeah. This sequence is insane. I was like, wait, this is, is this really happening in this movie? The creature is right out the window. As soon as she finds out about him, it breaks into the house and attacks her and grabs her. And then they like go down into the asylum under the house. And I'm I'm like, whoa. It reminded me of um, the remake of House on Haunted Hill. Oh, yeah. And it has like the insane asylum underneath the mansion. Right. That's a cool reveal. And then like the high tech nature of his security alarm system and everything is like really awesome and blocking off the corridor it's almost like death star-esque where it's like close this blast door and you know gas that room he explains that he has this in place i think he mentions when patients get unruly or unmanageable he can knock them out but just from a script perspective this seems like a solution looking for a problem you know like a reverse engineered thing that like they did in this in the screenwriting process where we're like we need to get this monster under control oh he's got you know this knock out gas system for his whole house sure it's even more convenient by the fact that like he's breaking into the place that we need him to be waking up in yes you know what were they gonna do go hunting for the monster like it's the other way around right like igor is looking for them right. so they know where to be found and it's just like all right you're free from prison let's get back at it let's get into that lab somehow I love it as a choice. It's just when I stop and think about it, it strikes me as a very unusual home security system to have in place. But it is cool to see something else that will affect the creature. Yes. That makes sense from what you're saying now, too, where you're like, okay, I got an idea on how to subdue him. And it's like, all right, how do we get there? I hear you there. But I like it. It's all very unexpected to me. You know, like I said, like I did, was not expecting the knockout gas. I was not expecting this to be so fast paced and have this much action happening. Yeah. After the monster, Igor, and Elsa have all been knocked unconscious, we get a scene where Elsa comes to in bed and has a scene with her father, where this is like, this is really the scene where he is coming clean about his family history, how he tried to keep everything from her. I think he's trying to get ahead of Igor, right? If he can admit these dirty family secrets right here and now, then Igor won't have any leverage over him. And the plan currently is to disassemble the monster 
monster. Does Bomer know about the monster now too, right? I feel like he came in during that whole altercation that was happening and, and is now privy to the idea. Either that or, or as soon as Ludwig explains to his daughter what's going on, I think he comes to Bomer and is like, I need you to help me disassemble this creature. Yes. Now, in the following scene with the creature strapped down to the lab table, that's when he and Bomer have that moment where he asks for Bomer's help in destroying the monster. And the way he plans to do that is to disassemble him, basically, you know, dismember him. Which is such a great image. It's so like reanimator. Because like, it's still not going to work. Because I picture his hand just like crawling <laughs> on its own off the table, right? His foot just like kicking away. His heart just constantly beating. Like, yeah. once it's alive, it's alive. It's a cool idea. And it, and it conjures up some like very twisted imagery. Yeah, and, and Bomer's whole argument in this scene is that this is a living thing now. To take it apart would be murder. And so he's not real keen on this idea. And I couldn't believe it at first. And it wasn't even occurring to me that maybe he's doing this to spite Dr. Frankenstein or anything yet, right? Like, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like, no, I don't want to be a part of any of this. I wish I didn't even see this thing. I have to believe that Bomer, at least in the for the time being, is really trying to do the right thing and be a good person because whatever mistake he made in the past is really weighing on him. And so until Igor presents him with the opportunity to redeem his tarnished honor, right? He's trying to do the right thing. So he hasn't been corrupted yet. In this moment, I can understand why he feels motivated to let the monster live. So the following scene is your favorite scene. This is where Ludwig is contemplating how he's going to destroy this this creature. It's his responsibility to do it himself. And as he is in the lab contemplating this, he is greeted by the ghost of his father, which, did you mention Hamlet earlier or was I thinking it? No, I don't think we mentioned it at all, but great call. I definitely wrote it in my notes. Like this is straight out of Hamlet, the hero of the story, getting a visit from his dead father and getting advice. I do love this scene. It's the only way that Ludwig is going to be coerced into doing the irrational thing. Because up until this point, he's going to do the responsible thing and destroy this thing, right? Like, nothing good has ever come from it. But suddenly he's greeted by the ghost of his father who coerces him into reestablishing the the family honor and if he can replace the malignant brain with a healthy brain then it will turn everything around and that is exactly what ludwig has been working towards we sort of get that in the in his first scene that the idea of removing a brain and replacing it with a brand new brain no one's ever done that before and if he could be the first to do it frankenstein's would be back on top right now the thing that is weird to me and see if you, i'm gonna see if you disagree here but i have a difficult time imagining colin clive or, you know, the, the Henry Frankenstein that we see at the end of Bride of Frankenstein being so eager to continue the work. Did that strike you as unusual? Because I feel like in both movies, in Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, Henry comes out of those movies like, this is for the best. We can't let this thing live. Yeah, so there's just so much going through my head during this scene. First is like, I can't believe there's an actual ghost of Frankenstein floating around the screen. <laughs> like, very, what do you say, like, low-tech special effects of, like, just the classic, like, his legs are cut off and he's yeah. floating around like Slimer. Yeah, yeah. Ghostbusters. 
And I was really like, oh my God, I can't believe like there's a real ghost in this. Like they're bringing all those other supernatural elements into this. And it's like really freaking me out because like now I'm like, Wolfman's going to be showing up in the next movie. So it's like, are they just trying to do something where they're expanding the monsters that are allowed to play with Frankenstein kind of situation to the point of like, you know, this doesn't feel like the ghost of Henry Frankenstein. That's where I sort of lie on it too. I think that Ludwig has lost it. And I love the concept of like, here's a man who has studied the brain. He's a neuroscientist. He's, he knows everything about it and whatever and stuff, but like he doesn't, he has lost his mind at this point that I feel like he has conjured up this image of his father that is telling him what he needs to hear. It's like his Tyler Durden moment. You know what I mean? Like, this is his fight club. Like, he's he is, like, convincing himself to do this. So, ultimately, that's where I lay on this scene, I think. I, I don't think the ghost is really there. I, I don't... Otherwise, I feel like they really would have milked it. I feel like the ghost would have come back at the end and been like, what have you done? <laughs> and that's why I like it more the more I think about it. It's like, I think they really tried to pull something there. I don't know if it worked or not, but that's how I kind of feel about it. Yeah, I think that's the way you have to rationalize it, right? Because... If it were the ghost of his father, then I just don't buy that he would be pushing him to continue this work. But the hallucination of Frankenstein doesn't really make a great title, which is why The Curse of Frankenstein should have been the title of this goddamn movie. But you have Ghost and Ghost and Frankenstein, so you're like, two monsters, you know, for the price of one or something. <laughs> that was my only real, like, issue with the scene. I had issues with the recast. I was kind of bummed to be like, that's what they're going with? Like, it's not even close. It's not even like the guy in the reshoot at the end of the first one where they needed him just to lie in a bed out of focus. You know, like they could have they could have done that better. That's what kind of got me. I was like, I love this conceptually. I'd love it that way. But I feel like, yeah, they could have executed it a lot better. Right. Like now his ambition has sort of taken over, which is really the curse of Frankenstein. I feel like with each Frankenstein who takes over the project of this creature, it's their ambition that ultimately drives them to do the horrible things that happen. If it wasn't for that, if, if Ludwig could just say, yeah, no, I'm not doing it. No, I'm not. There would be no movie. But he feels his own ambition to advance his career in some way. And this monster presents the absolute perfect opportunity to do that. So yeah, I think ambition is the true curse of, of the Frankenstein family. The other thing I really like about this idea is this was the plan from the very beginning was to use a good brain, <laughs> was to use like an educated brain. And then that jar got dropped and Igor grabbed like the criminal brain. So like, it's kind of fun how it's all about trying to finally get it right. What we thought we did the first time is like, we're still trying to rectify that. Ludwig decides that he is going to go ahead and swap this brain out for a healthy brain and become a leader in world medical science. I think that's sort of his plan. And so he recruits Dr. Bomer again for assistance. And this is when Igor learns of the plan to swap out the brain. And as soon as he hears that, his first thought is, whose brain are you going to use? Always thinking, always plotting. This is where it becomes Igor's master plan to become one with his friend, the Frankenstein monster. Like I said, I'd never seen this movie before. You know, I might have heard about this somewhere along the way. You might have even mentioned this in passing, but it was the furthest thing from my mind was we're going to put Igor's brain in the monster's body. And I thought that was just like, sure, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> Go for it. What's even more interesting, Igor's like, 
if you put this other guy's brain in there, he's not going to be my friend anymore. That I feel like that became like a lot of talk. I mean, I remember growing up hearing a lot about like lobotomies and, and brain surgery, you know, and things like that. And it's always like, well, is that still the person like that it used to be? Like their personalities changed so much. Is it even them anymore? I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm, I'm feeling sort of like hints of that here. Yeah, there's a lot we could read into this. I want to say that there are times when I've read into like homoerotic readings of this, you know, with Igor and the monster like becoming one. We could talk probably for hours just about that whole thing alone. But I, I love this idea, putting Igor's brain into the monster's body. Now, the plan is to put Dr. Kettering's brain in there, right? He was a man of science. He was respected. The monster killed him. And so I can see why Ludwig would feel it's his duty to keep Kettering alive by putting his brain into this body. But of course, we know Igor is, is not gonna, not about to let that happen. He is going to capitalize on this situation any way he can. I, I love how we just totally dismiss how long Kettering's been brain dead. Yes, I wrote that note. You, you mentioned Reanimator a few minutes ago. What was the amount of time, like the threshold? Was it six to ten minutes or something like that? And the whole thing about that was Herbert West conquering brain death. Kettering's been dead for like a day, right? Like there's no way his brain could still be usable. Anyway, Igor is concerned about losing his friend, is going to make sure that his brain ends up in that body. That's a great scene where he's talking to Bomer and he's kind of stroking his ego. And he's like, didn't you used to be the better doctor? Reminding him and like, this is your chance to like be on top again. Yes, we haven't gotten quite that far yet. But yeah, that scene is brilliant. I love Igor. Like he just knows where everybody's weakness is. Like that's one of those great scenes where Igor shows just how cunning and smart he is. He is manipulating everybody. And he knows Bomber is the one with just, he has that weakness, right? And so he extorts Bomber as much as possible. Ultimately achieves the goal he set out to achieve. Before that, all that really happens is like they charge the creature and prime him for the operation. He's like, we need to juice him up and get him healthy. They establish that he, he responds to electricity, right? Like there's something to that idea that if we can channel the electricity into the creature's body, like he will be rejuvenated. Igor has a funny line here. It's like the only time I got like, I felt like they were going for an actual joke and it was a genuine laugh. Igor's like explaining to the creature, he's like, you're going to get a new brain. And Ludwig's like, is he happy about it? And he's like, of course he's happy. Can't you tell? And they like have a shot of the creature and it's just like, <laughs> there's like no expression whatsoever. Right. That is the scene where uh, like we find out that he's temporarily storing the monster in that sort of basement dungeon that he later will claim to use for like patients of his that are um, uncontrollable. Yeah, there's the lab and then there's that giant chair and you move the chair and there's the room under the lab which is like the cells or whatever and then there's like another room where you remove a brick and it's like a hidden cell behind like again amazing with the hidden passageways like way over the top yeah i have to believe this was an old property and that these dungeons came with the house and he's just found uses for them he refers to one as like an auxiliary operating room and one is sort of like a holding cell for unruly patience. But yes, the monster finds out that he's going to be getting a new brain. Igor has his conversation with Bomer, where he promises that if he helps put Igor's brain into the monster's body and not Kettering's brain, it will put Bomer back on top where he used to be. He says, how would you like to be the leader of your profession in this state? The head of the medical commission, or the region of the university. He's tempting him with all of these potential 
accolades, right? Yeah, this is when he's like, uh, I'll be in the creature, you'll be by my side, and we'll rule the state, and then the country. Yes, and, <laughs> and, and then, then the, the world. world. And we'll get around to the world. I love the way that Lionel Atwell plays this scene, because up till now, he's been trying to do the right thing, but now he is seduced by this idea of being back where he used to be in, in the medical community, right? And, and, and potentially even better than that. And it almost feels like, to a degree, like, who cares about that, as long as he kind of gets over on Frankenstein? At this point, he's driven a little further, if you ask me. He just wants the power to call the shots. He just wants to tell Frankenstein what to do. To me, in my mind, it's not so much about the acclaim or any of that kind of stuff. That's just my reading. Yeah, I could see that. I don't necessarily feel that he harbors any grudges towards Ludwig, but at the same time, he's also trying to reclaim that honor that he used to have. So that's going to outweigh any personal feelings he feels towards Ludwig. I don't read it as any like real animosity on a personal level. He's just trying to achieve an end by any means. And if he has to sacrifice Ludwig or whatever, he'll do it. It almost feels a little to me, though, like he's stealing his thunder. The creature is sort of the Frankenstein family's thing. Now it's going to be Bomer's thing. You know, like he's trying to kind of take that away maybe a little bit or control that. I didn't really think too deep about it at the time. So the next scene, we have Eric and the police show up at Ludwig's home. They establish that they have combed the entire countryside for Igor and the monster after they escaped from the courthouse. They've searched every barn, every home, just about anywhere where these two could be, except for Ludwig's estate. And so they're there to make a search of his home. We know that the monster and Igor are down in the basement. This is fun because we get like a tour of all the secret passages. Yeah, and even Eric knows. I think he says to the like the constable, like, be sure to check for any secret passages. It's like common knowledge that a Frankenstein home would be loaded with secret hallways and, and trap doors and things. So Ludwig reluctantly allows them to search the home. I think the entire time he's just waiting for them to discover who's downstairs. But they make a search of the laboratory and of course they find the hidden passageway down into the basement dungeons. Once they get down there, Ludwig explains that these rooms are used for various reasons, uh, operating rooms and, and holding cells and whatnot. Mysteriously, Igor and the monster are not there. Yeah, I don't think we ever find out exactly like how they got out of there, but I would imagine there was at least two more secret passages that they could have used. <laughs> yeah, we don't figure out how they escaped, but the monster has gotten out and immediately makes his way to the little girl's home, little girl from earlier in the film, and he straight up abducts her from her bed. But she is unafraid of him and goes with him quietly. I think this is one of my favorite moments in this scene, or my favorite like just Frankenstein moments ever, is when he's like carrying her and then he like goes back to get her ball. But in doing so, he knocks over the oil lamp, which eventually burns down the whole house. Yeah. It's like he can't get out of his own way sometimes, which is one of the more tragic things about this character. Yeah, he's always been a bit of a bull in a china shop kind of guy. It's nice to have the fire back, you know, very iconic stuff for a Frankenstein movie. So maybe there was like a a deleted scene or something on film because there does seem to be a bit of a gap. How does he know where this little girl lives sort of situation? But, But on another level, I could sort of 
go with the monster can just kind of like censor or something like I'll give it to him I'll give it to the movie that he finds his way to the little girl's house but that's all again I get so much anxiety like I'm right back in that other sequence <laughs> where like he picks her up and it's under her arm and I'm trying to remind myself it's all just a movie <laughs> the imagery is just very strong it's just yes. it is like there's no other way like around it that was a lot i was on edge that whole thing he knocks over the fire lamp and i'm just like oh boy there are moments in the next scene where he tosses her around like a ragdoll kind of as he is fighting with igor he's got her in like under one arm while he's doing other stuff like thrashing igor and like and whatnot with his other hand i'm a little bit concerned for her safety but she's okay yeah, we didn't really mention Igor's got his, his horn again this movie. He doesn't really use it quite as much. It doesn't really come into play quite as much, but but there it is. It does sometimes, but as we learn in this next scene, it, it seems as though Igor is losing his control over the monster. The monster shows up with this little girl. We'll find out that his intention is to have her brain put into his head. Okay. Sure. Why not? Sure. Yeah. Like, that's just another one. It's like, really? It's like, yeah, let's just like play it for a scene and see how it goes, you know? But Igor tries to stop him and say, no, look, they're going to put my brain in your head. It'll Like, we'll be together. And the monster just does not give a shit. He would rather have this little girl's brain put into his head. And so I love seeing that relationship start to dissolve a little bit. We've seen Igor a step ahead of everybody from Son of Frankenstein until now. And he's always had the monster in his back pocket to get whatever he wants. But now he can't really rely on that anymore, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Like the influence of the girl is is overpowering the influence of Igor. I like that idea. And it's kind of interesting, too, that the monster is starting to know what it wants. That never occurred to me before. But this is like, aside from make me a wife back in the second one is the first time he's kind of like this is what i want he doesn't know if it's good or bad or you know i'm saying like you can't be doing that you can't be killing the little girl <laughs> or anything but he doesn't know that but he but the idea of like i want to think like this is what i got put a brain in my head more like this one i think he recognizes that she's a sweet little girl and he would rather have that sort of mentality than be this thing that just destroys everything and then the crippling line reading from the girl of like take me home yeah. The one thing about this whole bit, the little girl is gone from the movie now. That that whole thing doesn't really go anywhere. We will find out in a few scenes she has not been returned to her home. She's been gone for like two weeks. This is literally the last time we see her when Elsa takes her into another room and it's presumably to keep her secure for an indefinite period of time. It's just a loose end that I wish had been tied up a little bit neater. Yeah, as loose ends go, the point it makes outweighs the thread that's left. Because that never occurred to me until her dad's like, she couldn't be in the fire. Her, you know, her bones aren't there. It's been two weeks. And I was like, wow, okay. Like, I thought she just like made it home. In the next scene, we're finally at the operation. And it's decided that it is better if Ludwig and Dr. Bomer divide and conquer here, right? Bomer is going to be responsible for extracting the brain and Ludwig is going to be prepping the monster's body for the new brain, right? Bomer is downstairs with Igor and they have a great interaction where Bomer gives him like sort of one final out where he's like, you know, this could be the end of everything for you. Like if it doesn't work, that's it. You're going to be dead. And Igor says better dead than a life like this which I love. If he's not going to live forever, he's fine being dead. The way I see it, he is willing to die for the chance to be reborn as this 
man that has like the strength of a hundred men. He's very much willing to take that chance and potentially make the ultimate sacrifice in pursuit of that. I don't really get the sense that he's looking to die, but I do see him as calculating and this is one of those risk versus reward scenarios. If it works, he will be repaid tenfold. It's still a significant upgrade. He's got the hunchback. His body is kind of done. He knows that whatever happens after this, if it's not his brain in the monster, he will be alone again. He won't have a friend. So for him, I could see without having that friend, what would be the sense in continuing living? Very interesting stuff there that yeah. I, I wish I had more capacity to unpack. I think a lot of it is in how Bella delivers the material. He was such a great choice to play this character that if a lesser actor had played it, I don't know that it would have the same gravitas. Because you've got to think, Bella at this time was not the A-lister that he used to be. I think of that a lot is like, am I just bringing what I know about the things he had to go through and like his hardships and then see him do this amazing performance and realize it was totally like not appreciated? Yeah. That it like took a lot of time to come around and, and realize like what he's doing here is like amazing. I definitely am bringing like a lot of that to Bella while I'm watching him on screen. The tragedy of the end of Bella and everything always comes to mind. Right, yeah, I definitely see a lot of real-life Bella in Igor, particularly in this movie. Not to reference it again, but that monologue from Bride of the Monster. It's like interesting how these roles he took towards the end of his career really spoke to who he was in real life and what he was going through at that time. I could definitely see him doing these movies, like playing Igor, because it might lead to something greater. And if it didn't, his career would die, and like, that's okay too. I think he was constantly changing chasing that that return to the to the spotlight uh, which he never quite got I never thought that Igor would be this much of a main character ever and that Bella would be the one to I guess immortalize him you know I just know it just when I thought I always think of Dracula you know but you can't discount his performance as Igor either when we were first talking about Igor, he came up in our introductory episode before we really properly started the show. I think we talked about it in the, our, our original Frankenstein episode. You know, we think about how people would refer to Dr. Frankenstein's hunchbacked assistant as Igor, right? And I'm thinking like, no, fuck you. Igor is way cooler than this this simple hunchbacked assistant. You know, Igor is way cooler than that. Show Igor some proper respect, please. Poor Fritz. Fritz is great. I mean, we could talk about Dwight Fry all day, but I feel like if you're going to invoke the name of Igor, at least show him the proper respect because Igor is amazing. And what else is amazing is Igor's brain in a jar. That is so sci-fi. The rest of this movie is very Futurama looking like in my mind, you know, like they're really pushing, I feel more science fiction than, than like the Gothic horror kind of stuff. Moving on. I mean, the next scene, they bring the brain in. Yeah, we only got 10 minutes left, Dan, and like so much has to happen. <laughs> so much happens. I think uh, some time has passed. We haven't learned this information yet, but I think it's been a couple weeks. The monster is recuperating. But I love this moment between Ludwig and Dr. Bomer because Ludwig acknowledges that Bomer should be a more respected man in his field. Yes. And he hopes that whatever acclaim he can get from participating in this operation will restore some of that. But the deed has been done. <laughs>
too little too late like what a tragedy like it just adds this era of tragedy it kind of feels like it should be in more of these things but like you mentioned hamlet like i feel like that's a shakespeare thing where it's you know where it's like oh we just like shakespeare i feel is always like we just missed each other yeah. romeo and juliet when with the package and everything and uh, like i feel like that is kind of a thing i get that kind of vibe from this moment where it's like oh man if only we had talked more earlier or something but it's past the point no return. Yeah, and I think that's one of the great things about this era of really great actors, right? Like a lot of these performers did Shakespeare. Like a lot of them were British actors who started on stage doing classic stuff. And so they're bringing that classical theatrical element to these roles. And so it's hard not to see it sometimes, especially like in a scene like that. I think there's definitely something to that. And I don't think it's by accident. But yeah, things could have been so different. If only he had stayed on the honest path things might be okay and he might get that recognition that he was seeking but anyway we go back to town this is where we find out it's it's been a couple weeks since the little girl has disappeared her father is like standing before this angry mob and they are bloodthirsty man we are right back where we started. Yes. They're like, let's go choke out Frankenstein until he <laughs> gives us information. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. Yes. Like they figure that the only place she could be is at the Castle Frankenstein or this new Castle Frankenstein. I'm waiting for Dwight Fry to show back up again and go like, we only, we got to burn up the house. <laughs> right. The angry mob with the torches and, and, and whatnot is just, it's such a cliche at this point, but you can't have a Frankenstein movie without them. I feel like I can't imagine it. They're still doing a good job of working it in. Like here with the idea of it bookending the movie and, and then being a different town that ends up in the same situation as the other. You know what I mean? Yes. Like there's this great symmetry between it all. Yeah, I mean, it's a pattern, right? I sort of talked about it before that like each Frankenstein blinded by their own ambition ultimately leads to an angry mob carrying torches, pitchforks, ready to like murder this thing. And so now it's it's Ludwig's turn. Fortunately, Eric arrives on horseback to stop them. So great. Right? Dude, that is awesome. That was amazing where he just like jumps on a horse to outrun them. And like it was kind of like, like a Zorro moment or something. I don't know, but he's got like those big long boots on yep. and everything. And I was like, wow, I dig this guy. I wish he had to like fight someone in this movie. Yeah, this is his big hero moment. I wish that like he did get to fight something. No, he's just there to establish law and order. Like, no, we don't do this here. We have laws to protect people. There's a there's a method to this. We will get to the bottom of it, I promise. Yeah, we are better than the town of Frankenstein. <laughs> like, let us not sink to that level, folks. And he, like, buys them six minutes or something. <laughs> and I, I love that the mob is like, yeah, like, this is what happens when uh, your prosecutor's in love with the guy's daughter, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, you let that mad scientist run amok to, just to get a piece. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so Eric earns himself a, a few minutes to go in there and try and smooth out the situation himself. The crowd does reluctantly agree to that for a short period of time anyway. But when Eric gets inside, Ludwig, very proud of what he's done up to this point, decides he's going to reveal the fruits of his labor and show him that everything's okay. He replaced the monster's brain with a good brain, and everything will be fine. There's no need to panic. Which we find out, like, if everything had gone according to plan, there wouldn't be anything to panic about. Well, I mean, he'd still have to answer for Dr. Kettering, probably. Well, but Kettering would 
technically still be alive. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like if, if things had gone to plan, then Kettering would be coherent and uh, alive inside the monster's body. That'd be a whole can of worms that this movie is not equipped to get into. But this is the big reveal. Ludwig thinks that Kettering's brain is in the monster. Bomer, Dr. Bomer, knows better. And the reveal happens as Ludwig is showing off his creation. The thing that is so strange to me is that when the monster does speak, it speaks in Igor's voice. Did that did that throw you at all? So I actually loved it. Did you? I felt that it worked. Like, I almost feel like Igor Stein is... First of all, I think that's amazing. Igor Stein is amazing. But I almost feel that Lon Chaney is doing a Bella impression with his face at times. Oh, yeah. That, to me, is sort of like the linchpin. Like, that was the genius choice was like, because he probably spoke like Bella, like did a full impression on set. And they're like, you think we could use that? And man, we might as well put Bella's voice just to like really drive it home. But I liked it. I thought it was very shocking. And, you know, Dan, all I could keep thinking of was like Professor Hulk, right? (laughs) Where you get like the brains and the brawn and you put them together and you got like this amazing package here. And I was ready. I almost wish this happened 10 minutes ago, right? Because it's it's just, we're now we're just into that trope where like Bride of Frankenstein, we're going to get him and then he's going to be gone right away. And I just kind of wish we had more like pontificating creature walking around trying to tell people off. <laughs> it does seem a little bit short-lived as Igor Stein starts to enact his master plan. It's, it's almost over before he can really get it off the ground. He starts exclaiming like, I'm Igor will live forever. And, and this is when Ludwig says out loud, I've created a hundred times the monster my father made. And Bomber, if you watch Bomber throughout this whole scene, as Ludwig and, and Igor speak to each other before like the realization hits him, I love watching Bomber in the background. Just watching him watch the two because like he knows what's up. And just the subtle speechless acting he does is just incredible. Yeah, I think all around this movie is like really well directed. Everyone is is in the same movie. There's been times where recently that's not been the case. When we get further away from the sort of the core films and deeper into the sequels, you get kind of mismatched performances here and there. Yeah. But not in this case. Like everybody knows the score, like everyone's on the same page and like this director uh, knows what he wants at least it seems and everything that is supposed to kind of affect me does in one way or another i feel yeah again like we've talked about he doesn't really waste time with superfluous dialogue and, and sequences like it just goes from one thing to the next and we've sort of said also that there's some spaces where he could have expanded a little bit more but i mean at the same time this never gets boring it never lets up so it's hard to be really upset about that yeah, and it never really has any trouble like establishing anything, no, right? No, like, everything's it, it pretty It can clear. really get to the point of of every scene like very fast, and yeah. yeah. I mean, we're talking about what ifs and and sort of the scope of this story in in, in ways that the movie is not really interested in exploring. As a, as a monster movie, as a piece of entertainment, it is very efficient in what it's trying to do, and like the what ifs are not necessary to enjoy this movie. This is one of the more efficient movies that we've seen, and you know, I, I appreciate that it moves as briskly a pace as it does. Okay, so with that, we have the angry mob storming into Castle Frankenstein. Igor, who knows about this poison gas system, immediately plans to like just turn everything on, kill everybody as they come into the building. 
I got a big Joker style sort of coup de gras from right. from Igor Stein there. Where he's like, give him the gas. Right. And then the fatal flaw in his plan is eventually revealed. Before he can really do much with his strength of a thousand men, he is suddenly stricken blind. We discover from Ludwig that Kittering's blood was the same blood type as what was in the monster, but Igor's wasn't. Igor's didn't match. And for whatever reason, that led to sensory deprivation and the loss of his his eyesight. Which I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a thing. I mean, you know, you have to be compatible, right? Like you can't just like get a kidney from anybody, right? Like you have to get a donor that matches. But I don't know what the consequence is for not matching. The organ won't function. It it stop it breaks down like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't merge with your body properly and like you have to get it taken out or you die, I assume, but like there is like truth to the idea of matching blood types and things, right? Right, of course. Like I've seen killer body part movies where this was never an issue. And they introduce it in like the hour five minute mark where there's like a minute left and then credits. And it's like, wait a minute, the big M. Night twist is that the monster's blood type doesn't match. Like, I would assume that the monster is a universal donor. (laughs) Otherwise, like its body parts wouldn't match. Of all the ideas, I was like, couldn't you just leave that out and have the mansion fall on him and call it a night? Like, did we really have to go there (laughs) of everything? Yeah, it's just one of those bits where I was like, I don't know if I totally trust the science. It will have an impact on the next Frankenstein movie that we do watch. So it is important in that regard for continuity. Franken-blind? We'll get there. We'll get there. So the film pretty much wraps up at this point. Igor, now blind, kills Bomber. That's a cool death. Throws him into the, the big, like, computer machine and he gets shocked to death. And the villagers are successful in torching the the mansion, so the entire place goes up in flames. Igor has his like freak out moment in the in the laboratory, knocking over test tubes and shelves, and all very dramatic. And of course, Eric and Elsa make their way to safety, uh, watching the the house behind them crumble. But Ludwig does not, right? There's no trace of him. The house goes up. He's knocked out. I presume that that he goes up in the house. Yeah, there's no finite resolution for Ludwig. The last we see him is when he reveals the the, the whole blood type issue. But beyond that, Bomer is killed. The house goes up in flames. We never see Ludwig escape. So he is presumably um, burned up in the flames. Maybe he will return as the next ghost of Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to point out the makeup in that final sequence as the house is, is burning up. I thought Lon Chaney looked pretty good. Like his makeup as it starts to flake and crust and burn up. It looked great. I think Jack Pierce did a really good job there. Yeah, yeah. So just regarding the creature, the entire film, my only concern with the look of it were his eyelids. Like it just looked like they were way closed or low as opposed like I didn't even consider you know he's not as gaunt as the previous creature and none of that really struck a chord I was more just like I was like yeah Lon Chaney is a very big imposing guy that should always be playing Frankenstein it's hard to explain but like when they recast someone and it just works like with Lon Chaney it's like he's doing his Frankenstein's creature but it's still a it's still like a a great version of it that I accept 
totally. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I don't know. I just, I really like his embodiment of the monster. Yeah, I could see that. I, I think he did a great job with what he had. I will say that considering the amount of depth he gave Larry Talbot in The Wolfman, I would have liked to have seen him bring more of that emotional complexity to the Frankenstein monster, like the way Karloff did. But I think that with this film and the director, it was just like, they were just trying to get through it as quickly and, and, and effortlessly as possible. So I don't know that Cheney had the opportunities to really do that. The closest he gets is in that courtroom scene with the little girl when he freaks out. Like he has that like sort of tender moment with her and then freaks out. But other than that, I think he obviously he's capable of it, but he just they didn't have the time to work with to really flesh out the character. So he's really just playing a big silent brute for the bulk of the film. True. I guess where I just got like really impressed was at the end there when he started doing his Bella face, you know, right, like right. just the con- just that whole idea that he went for something else during that moment or during those moments in the movie just for me feels like oh that is a a Lon Chaney thing that he brings to this that worked for me that I thought was kind of interesting but yeah ultimately you know like I guess anyone can play Jason anyone can play Frankenstein but to me like I don't know he brought a certain sort of sway to it that felt classic yet his own. I do think that having him have scenes with the little girl really helped bring out Lon Chaney in the performance. Yeah, that's a good call. Without that, I don't know that it would have really mattered who played the monster. But because we know that Lon Chaney really had that affinity for kids and, and animals and, and whatnot, that like that's really where he shines here in this film. All right. I think that's a good place to end. Is there anything else you would like to add? Just that this may have been the first time I watched this movie, but it, it sure as hell won't be the last time. Like this one is just a ton of fun. It gets real crazy. It just feels like it's from like the next era, right? Like if. if feels like we have completely left behind like that full-on gothic art house style which was terrific and amazing and like built the ground for all this stuff but this phase is gonna be i think it's gonna be a lot of fun because i love movies i love all kinds of monster science fiction movies from this era and the next you know especially when we get into those 50s movies but yeah i I had a really fun time I, i think this was a nice addition to the frankenstein mythos and yeah you know everyone should check this out Yeah, I agree. I think that it makes some pretty ballsy decisions with the narrative here. And I I just wish that the movie had been more willing to explore some of them. You know, I think that it's it's a little it's a little too shallow for my taste. But there is some really cool stuff in here that is worth exploring. And I'm glad like we get to talk about it like this so we we can do that work on our own. But uh, yeah, I think if you're a Frankenstein fan and you want to see the franchise sort of taken into a, a wild direction, this is the one, you know, like this is really a lot of fun. I think ballsy is a good word for this. Like they really kind of don't care what you think about what they're doing. They're just going to do what they want to do. That's the kind of filmmaking it feels like. Like that's the kind of spirit I get from the film. And I think that was a good vibe that I got from it. Where it's just like, yeah, you're either with us for the ride or, or whatever. There's three other Frankenstein movies you could go watch if you want to. Well, with that, I think it's time for us to head back down into our lab, but we'll be back on Friday, December 31st to head deep into enemy territory as we discuss Invisible Agent. What a way to ring in the new year. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us, and you can email us at themonsterstthatmadeus at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you? 
You can find me on Twitter at at the underscore Mike store, and you can find all the other shows I'm on at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And let's not forget about our t-shirts. You can find the link for those in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. Bye.